Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Hey everyone, I am Daniel, the host of Savage to Sage. It's good to be back. And today I'm joined by a friend and a partner of Full Sacks, Mike Rutz. Mike is the CEO and co-founder of Make My Move. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Glad to be here. So why don't you give people the quick elevator pitch for Make My Move? What is it that you do in this crazy world of 2022? Yeah, it is the crazy world. So Make My Move was actually born out of the pandemic. We had a company called TMAP that I'd started with Bill Osterley, who was the founder of Angie's List and was the CEO for, gosh, almost 20 years there. Basically, when the pandemic happened, we saw an opportunity because there was suddenly this new market of worker. We went from 5 million remote workers to over 60 million in a matter of weeks. And suddenly these workers started to realize that they were geographically not constrained anymore by where their employer resided, right? So they could kind of take their job and go wherever they wanted and work wherever they wanted to. And we saw communities that were trying to recruit these workers because of the population growth issues, because of workforce issues, which are only going to get worse, by the way, over the next 10 or 20 years. And so we decided to build a marketplace where those communities that want to recruit these types of workers could actually market themselves, connect with those workers, and ultimately recruit them. Got it. And you recently described to me over a delicious lunch about potentially opening up a three-sided marketplace, because obviously with what you described, you have like, you're selling to the towns, you're selling to remote workers, but then you mentioned a third side of the marketplace if you're able to share of that, or if it's still a confidential IP, then, you know, we don't have to talk about here. So. Now, employers will become the third side of the marketplace. We're planning on working on developing that side in the second half of this year. There's a couple of different employer personas, if you will. One is there's companies that want remote workers, right? They're based anywhere in the United States and they'll hire anywhere in the United States. And there's a lot more of them today than there were several months ago. And I'm guessing there will be a lot more in a year. So we'll help those companies connect with remote workers. We have a database of over 50,000 since we started. And that's growing every day from folks that show up at the site and register with us. Some of those folks are looking for communities to live in. Some of those folks are looking for remote jobs, like they want to become a remote worker. The second type of company that we plan to work with is within those communities, right? As communities market themselves to workers. One of the things that we all realize, and sometimes we don't think about, but we're thinking a lot more about it, is that the employers in that community make up a big component of who that community is and what the personality of that community is. And so we want to be able to give employers an opportunity to market themselves through those communities on the website as well. That's really smart. And I mean, especially when you think about I should probably have this stat memorized because it's such an impactful stat. But when you look at these towns, like I obviously, because I'm in the Midwest, we're both in the Midwest, you know, I focus on these Midwest towns or smaller cities where like the population has been decreasing for a long period of time as people are moving to bigger cities. It's almost like, what do you do to differentiate yourself? And then they have the ability to capitalize right now on the crazy housing market that we're in, especially in cities like 
Indianapolis, St. Louis, you know, name your like big Midwest city where it's like people that can work remotely don't want to pay $500,000 for a house that they used to be able to get for 160 or 200,000. And instead they could find a home and green, one of the greens in Indiana, like Greencastle or Greenfield, you know, for a fraction of the cost and still deliver on their job and have a great job. So I have a friend who's a VP at Salesforce, right? And Salesforce is allowing them to go full-time remote. Her husband actually has a job as a traveling, he's a traveling salesperson. And when they gave them the opportunity to go full-time remote, they decided to move from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne, Indiana. You know, and this is a household that has a pretty high level of income. They have three children. So from an economic development perspective, highly valuable to Fort Wayne. And Fort Wayne wins, right? Because they have houses cost less in Fort Wayne than they do in Indianapolis. Her family is closer and she can do her job as well as she did it in Indianapolis from a remote perspective. So that's just one example. There's study after study that's being released right now that's showing how remote work is affecting migration in the United States. And I think it's a real opportunity for suburban and rural communities across the country to kind of take advantage and capitalize and start to diversify talent, increase population, increase workforce. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that overview. And I think people listening today, I definitely recommend you check out makemymove.com and also Mike Rutz's LinkedIn to connect with him because, yeah, this is the future of employment. And, you know, like Mike was saying, where people live, I think everyone's concerned and thinking about that right now and have pivoted quite a bit because of the pandemic. But we are not here to talk about that for the whole time. We're here to talk about, Mike, your entrepreneurial evolution. And I like to look at this savage to stage journey for entrepreneurs like you in three categories. The first is self-awareness. So what have you learned about yourself through this journey? And then the secondly is like, how have you identified like the right team members to join you in that journey? And then ultimately like, multiplied yourself through them as opposed to like trying to do it all. And then third is how have you grown in your own practice of like what I'd call like soul care or self care, which I think entrepreneurs are traditionally fairly bad at, but I think the ones that are, are doing the best, you know, both in business and in life have some practice outside of the workplace that they, they do to fill their soul. And so I want to hit on each of those areas briefly. I know you have a long story to share, but in the time that we have today, just hit on those areas. And um, so in terms of self-awareness, um, I know you you started at Angie's List with Bill. You were a partner there. And then you decided to jump in with him on this new venture and just talk a little bit about like in that journey from Angie's List to make my move now, like what are the main things that you've learned about yourself that you otherwise wouldn't have learned if, you know, you were just working a corporate job somewhere? I think a couple of things is I prefer action over almost everything else, right? You know, like I like to do things. I like to fail. Well, I don't like to fail, but, you know. You learn a lot by doing. One of the things that I loved at Angie's List was just the speed at which we operated. You know, when I started running, I started Angie's List in 2006. And I had actually come out of, I grew up in politics. And politics is a really interesting place to start your career because every campaign is like a startup. You know, it starts with 
a candidate who goes, hey, I'm going to run for office. And then they have to actually build a staff and that staff has to go out. And, you know, you got to hire people to do things. You got to build a grassroots organization. You got to mobilize the community. And the interesting part about it is there's like a finite period of time that you know that company is going to exist and you run as fast as you can for the finish line and that's it, right? You know, so really every single one of them is a startup and I worked in several of those, most notably Mitch Daniels campaign, 2004. And so I learned a lot about, hey, you got to get things done. You got to figure out there's not always someone you can delegate to. You know, a lot of times you got to get things done on your own. And at Angie's List, you know, it was very similar. You know, we were running fast and hard. Before we went public, gosh, I took over sales in January of 2011. And there were about 150 folks. When I say sales, that's effectively our outbound sales organization, our account management organization, which is now known as client success in that world. And just basically all the operations and kind of overhead that uh, helped the department's function. And there was about 150 people. By two years later, we had a thousand, you know, so it was a fast moving train and you just kind of had to hold on for dear life and sort of, you had to be able to deal with some of the sloppiness. You had to be able to know, okay, not everything's going to be a right angle and perfect, but you just want to make sure that you have forward motion, that things are working the way you want them to work somewhat, you know, 80% of the time. And so what I learned about myself was the fact that I kind of like things neat and tidy. I try to keep my car really clean. My family doesn't do a whole lot about keeping the house neat and tidy, which gives me anxiety all the time. But it's one of those things that I've realized about myself is that, yeah, you know, if it's a little messy, I'm okay with it as long as we're making progress towards that goal. A lot of the lessons that I learned going from 150 to 1,000, they even apply when you're at a startup and you're going from three to 10. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be, you're going to have to work in a lot of ambiguity, which is something that a lot of folks can't do. And it's something I didn't realize I was capable of working in that type of environment. The other thing that's weird is just the numbers, right? I was managing a $250 million P&L and then going to a startup and it's like, you know, if we got to a million, <laughs> you know, it's a very different dynamic. Yep, it is. What would you say was... The early days of, you know, Team App, which is now Make My Move, when you and Bill and Evan and the others were standing that up, what was that energy like for you? What did you learn then? One, trial and error. Just because we sold something didn't mean that it was what the business was going to be a year from now, right? And so first and foremost, we wanted to see, was there a market for what we were selling? And we'd sell it. And then we'd go, okay, now we actually have, have to execute on that. And so the part that we were really trying to focus on was how do we take what we're doing and turn it into something that's repeatable and scalable and economically viable. And you think a lot harder. You know, when I took over sales at Angie's List, it was a machine. There were a lot of the moving parts that had already been worked out and we understood that business really well. Here, you know, with each transaction, you're still trying to figure out, okay, What do we need to do differently here in order to make this something that's repeatable and scalable and will deliver value to the customer? So you spend a lot more time on that in the front end. And then once you start to get closer, you start to think about, okay, how can we do this in a way that's more repeatable? Right. That makes a lot of sense. So talk a little bit about what are some of the practices you've mentioned not being able to handle 
things not being neat and tidy at the beginning, but then you grew in that as time went on. Like, what were some of the things that you did to help you go from point A to point B there in terms of being able to accept when things you know weren't neat and tidy? Oh my gosh, there's a lot of different things. Um, I think one of the things that we actually did really well was we gave each manager a lot of leash to go out and grow their business. In fact, each sales manager, they had a slug of territory that they were responsible for. And we had a number that we associated with that territory. Here's what it should be worth this month in terms of new advertising or new revenue. We really tried to do was make everything as simple as possible for the sales managers so they could focus on three things. You have to hire well and you have to fire well. If you hire a great salesperson, it makes your life so much easier. It makes your life exponentially easier. And if you hire a bad salesperson, it makes your life exponentially more difficult. So being able to identify talent and hire it and then fire it, you know, when needed was sort of job number one. Two, you've got to allocate territory within your team to make sure that you have it done in a way that's going to optimize that territory. And then third is just coaching and leading, just making sure that your team is in a good place mentally, that they are happy when they show up at work, that any obstacles that are showing up in their daily lives, whether it's with a transaction or, or getting a deal done, whatever that may be, just making sure that they're in a good headspace, that they know how to speak to and sell to these folks and really driving performance. And that's really how we tried to boil it down and make it as simple as possible and then give them all kinds of leeway to go out and run their team the way they wanted to run them. Those are some awesome strategies on the sales side. When I've come in across, you know, those, my example that I share often on the podcast is like, when situations of high intensity and conflict come up, that's for you. I think your example is when things are neat and tidy are not neat and tidy. You know, that's when you want to crawl into a hole and hide or whatever you do. Like for me, you know, when things are intense and conflict comes up, my natural personality is to crawl into a hole and hide, basically to go in the woods and escape. I think I've had to learn, similar to you, that I have to work like internally on myself and then externally in the situations with people that I'm managing or I'm on a peer level with as executives, like on strategies within the business. There's one point that you brought up that I think, and I'm sure people have said it before on this podcast or others, but like one of the things that I always coached with my managers was if you're not having uncomfortable conversations, you're not moving the needle. Your job is to come in and be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations and manage those in a way that's productive for yourself and for the individual who you're having that conversation with. You have to be able to have uncomfortable conversations when you're leading a team. Otherwise, you just can't address, you know, the areas that need improvement. And so I always kind of coach them on if I met with them every two weeks, it would be, okay, tell me about an uncomfortable conversation you had in the last two weeks. You know, I'd kind of put them on the spot to kind of see, okay, talk to me a little bit about this. I want to make sure you're having them and I want to hear how you're handling them. And your question was, I think, to me, like internally, you know, thinking about that, it was kind of similar in a way, right? You know, I always said that we had some rough spots there. You know, while we were growing, there were moments where we sort of outgrew where we needed to be. So we had to trim, you know, and those are rough times. It's no fun. And when you're dealing with that type of a dynamic and you're driving into the office, I literally remember thinking about 
those difficult days and going, these are the days when I'm really earning my money. Those months when we're making our quota and we're hitting our numbers and things look great and life is good, that's gravy. It's, you know, when you're digging ditches and, you know, you're driving into work and going, today's going to be a tough day. That's really when you're earning your money. Yeah. And I find that, man, if I have to like hone in on myself, I call them like self-care or soul care practices. I mean, going to the gym, making sure I get the run in or the walk in or meditation to be able to handle those types of days you're describing. And I'm interested to know, like, what are some of those practices that you've done yourself to prepare for entering into those types of days? First and foremost, my family. My kids are a little older now, but at that point in time in my career, I had two young boys that were six and four. I really was disciplined about making sure when I got home at night that I was available to them and that I was like there and present. I wouldn't give that up for the world. I'll look back on my career and go, I have no regrets about anything because I missed an email in the evening or a phone call. You know, it's like that was my time with them. And that really was my favorite way to decompress was coming home and throwing the football with my two crazy boys. That was really important to me. And I made sure that I took that time. You know what? I remember early on, my son said to me, he's like, Dad, you always look at your phone, you know, in the evening. I literally decided, okay, you know, from like 6.30 until like the boys go to bed, 9, 9.30, whatever, I'm going to put that phone on the counter and I'm not going to pay attention to it. So that was one way. And then, you know, the second way was um, I love to fly airplanes. I went out and got my pilot's license and that was like yoga to me. And the reason why I would describe it as yoga is like, you know, you're so busy flying the airplane and trying not to die that you're not thinking about like, you know, your family, your friends, work, anything else. You're just up in that airplane all by yourself, making sure that you don't crash. It's really a relaxing and invigorating thing. I always felt very mentally refreshed, even though you know, as I was learning, there was a lot that you had to be processing and multitasking. I just always felt really invigorated after doing that. I would encourage anybody go out and try to fly airplanes. It doesn't sound as relaxing as uh, me being in child's pose in my guest room in the morning. So yeah, it's a little different. It's a little different. Yeah, I prefer things that don't put my life and other people's lives in danger. So <laughs> that's why you're you're Mike Rutz and I'm Daniel. So that's hilarious. I like that. So clearly, like, as you and the team started getting momentum around team app, you know, before the pandemic, then make my move. Since then, like, you've had to multiply, you've grown. What is it like those key characteristics you're looking for? As you've added to your startup? What are you looking for in people that you know, like, yes, this person gets it, they have the DNA of who's going to make a really good fit here for our team? I think first and foremost is scrappiness, you know, just one, being able to identify what needs to get done and then just getting it done. And really, I'm okay with people asking questions, but a lot of times it's one of those things where it's like, go figure it out on your own, you know, and then come back to me. Also, people who are unafraid to make mistakes, hard workers, unafraid to make mistakes, willing to learn. I'm talking about myself, too. You know, I mean, we, we're always learning you know, every day. 
So I think those are probably the three most important characteristics. I also think just, again, I'll mention being able to kind of work in ambiguity. You know, there's going to be things that come up that aren't necessarily in your job description, but they need to get done. So you just got to be willing to do those kinds of things and work on things that may not feel like they're part of your job. I'm sure you've experienced that, you know, at full stack. Just a little bit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. I think there's that tension there because you, I'm a partner, you're obviously a partner and you're acting like an owner. I'm acting like an owner. And you don't necessarily want to put that same burden on those early employees that aren't necessarily like they don't have a piece of the pie in the same way that we do. You're focused on retaining them and not overburdening them or burning them out. At the same time, you know, I think there's something like what you're talking about. There's a characteristic of people that have what we call it is like they have a stomach for a startup that just get it. And they naturally are like, they're going to go above and beyond and they're going to ideate a sense of adventure. Yeah. They're going to make mistakes, but not kill themselves over or beat themselves up about it. They're going to learn from it and say like, yeah, that was a hundred dollar mistake or that was a $20,000 mistake. So yeah, exactly. I think about it as kind of like, as this is moving along and starting to grow, it's almost like, I remember the earlier days I came into the office and I had a, if I had a hundred swings at bat, I would hit zero. I'd go zero for a hundred. And then one day I'd go one out of a hundred. And then another day I might go two out of a hundred. And slowly, you know, you're still losing a lot of at-bats, you know, but you keep swinging at them and suddenly you start to hit another one and another one, another one, and they start to build on themselves. And you just have to have that grit to be able to kind of get through those periods of time when it's like, man, I'm swinging the bat, but I am not hitting that ball at all. It takes a grip. I know that word is overused, but there's a reason why it's overused. Yeah. And my last conversation was was with one. I know she's a partner to you and especially Shelly, Amy Oviedo from Recruiting Experiences, kind of in a parallel space to you. She was talking about how the number one characteristic she looks for in candidates to join her team is scrappiness and somebody that maybe not on paper looks like, hey, this is the ideal candidate to work for our recruiting company. But it has that grit and scrappiness and has had to overcome something really challenging. I think that that's typically who we also find, you know, to be successful in the space, just because there's so much learning, especially if you're in sales, which you and I know well, in a startup, it's like, you're getting just punched in the face, like at least a couple times daily. Every day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, all right, that hurt. And I have to move on. Here's why I think, I think that's true for every salesperson. But what the difference is, is in a startup, every time you get kicked in the teeth, you have to know that it's not because your business is flawed. I think that's what you have to resist as a founder is when you're like, man, I tried to sell 100 times today. I sold nothing. It doesn't mean that what you're trying to sell is not a good product or that you're not onto something. And you have to kind of expel that from your mind and make sure that you're, you know, this is how sales works. It doesn't matter what you're selling. And sometimes that's hard to get over, right? Especially when you're trying to figure things out. Yeah. This is slowly becoming a therapy session for me. So I might change the subject quickly. So (laughs) (laughs) it's funny. Yeah. So we're near the end of our time. And I like to end, you know, with two lightning round questions that are 
related to what we've been talking about so far. And the first is like if you had an hour during a weekday or a couple hour chunk during a weekend to do something that would recharge your battery better than anything else. I mean, you mentioned flying an airplane earlier, but maybe another example of like something that would recharge you, what would you choose to do? Oh, gosh. I mean, I love to lay in a lake and drink beer. I like to play golf. I do. I like to golf. I like to read a good book. You know, I mean, I'm not the most voracious reader. Like my mom was a librarian, so I had books jammed down my throat. But I love to read, you know, I love to read a good history book, you know, a good biography. And then, you know, every once in a while, I'll veg out and put on like, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm or something like that to laugh. That's great. The second one is a lot of the listeners here that we've found are very early stage entrepreneurs and they're like they're finding their way, both in terms of some of the stuff we talked about on a personal level, but then on a company level. And what would be like one key piece of like sage advice that you would give them, you know, of like focus on this as an early stage entrepreneur that's just diving into a company or they're thinking about it, they're in maybe beta phase and they're thinking about launching. Like, what would you say to them? I mean, so one is listen to the customer or the prospective customer, which is easier said than done. You can say, listen to the customer, but you really have to think hard about what they're saying and take it to heart and kind of like process it, process it, process it. There's a lot more dimensions to what they're saying to you than what they're actually saying to you. So I think really, really making sure that you're doing a good job on that. And I think the second thing is really focusing in on don't try to do too many things or don't try to be everything to too many people because early on, you'll be out there pitching and you'll be hearing from those prospective customers or your customers and you'll hear 20 different things. You have to make sure that you don't go, okay, we can do all 20 of these things for all 20 of these customers. You really have to zero in and go, okay, I can only do it for two. I'm going to have to tell those other 18 that I can't do what it is they're asking for. But really make sure that you get good at what you're doing for those two customers and that you're turning it into something that's repeatable and scalable. Saying no to someone who wants to buy from you is really difficult when you're starting a company because you go, oh, yeah, well, okay, well, that's not exactly what we do, but I think we can make that work. We did that, and I'd say resist that temptation. It led to some things for us, but I think more often than not, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, when you're surviving, you're, you need revenue to make it both your job as well as the company moving forward, it it is really hard to say no if it feels like this is a deal breaker for this client. Like you said, while you want to listen to the client, receive their advice of like, here's how this could be really useful for our business. That doesn't mean it's necessarily your business. And so, like you said, becoming really clear and those lanes of like, what do I do? What do we not do? And that's key. So Every single one of those is a distraction from what you're trying to accomplish, and they absorb resources. And you are in a resource-constrained environment in a startup, so you have to make sure that you're really, really focused. I don't know if that's great advice, but it sure as hell is what I feel like I've learned. Yeah, I do. It's great sage advice. And Mike, I really appreciate your time today and um, all that you're doing 
you know, with Make My Move and your team is doing, I think it's making a huge impact and look forward to seeing the growth and the impact that you continue to make in these communities that really need a boost of life from remote workers and the remote workers as well and employers that will benefit from what you're doing as well. So thank you. And where would you point someone if they're like, Mike, I want to learn more about Make My Move. I know it's makemymove.com, but if they wanted to get in touch with you. You can hit me up on LinkedIn or my email address is mike at makemymove.com. Easy enough. Easy enough. Awesome. Appreciate you, man. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.